Brian. So this is one of those rare instances where I come in at the top of the podcast and give you a bit of a preamble. This is an old conversation. It was recorded maybe a year and a half or two years ago, was originally intended for a publication, still hasn't appeared in print. So I finally got around to editing it into a podcast. It's a conversation with Mike Diana. He is the first person to receive a criminal conviction in the United States for artistic obscenity for his comic, Boiled Angel. Uh, as you can probably guess from this preamble, there's some pretty rough subject matter in this conversation. I, I bleeped out all of the proper names, but uh, we still talk about what he talks about in his book. So uh, recommend not listening to it with any young children in the room or, you know, if you're just uh, don't want to hear rough subject matter, then I, I would recommend skipping this one altogether. Uh, for everybody else, please enjoy this bonus episode of R.A.Y.L. Yeah, so he figured that's why I was depressed or I was like, um, you know, like festering, what if the right word is that you're like yeah. staying in your own depression or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really see it that way. Um, it felt like it was more of the community around me in, in Florida itself that would depress me and and turn my art into the direction it did because I would see reports about priests molesting children um, Newspaper reports on the news, and the news was basically like a daily horror show, um, like a tabloid TV show about what horrible murders happen in the community and etc. And so I felt like I was just um, a mirror of the society that I was around, you know, that I was growing yeah. up in since age eight in that community. And also Largo was a very conservative small town very religious they have streets like one in, that we lived on was called rosary road <laughs> you know streets named after bible characters and stuff yeah and this was a town that was growing uh much more faster than the people that live there i mean um old retired people that didn't want to have anything to do with like me you know a family up from upstate new york just moving their community and I felt like it was a big difference from New York, you know, the school I was up in, a small town school in New York, which seemed what my idea of normal was after moving to Florida and seeing how crazy things were. But I never felt like, I always felt like I had freedom of speech, you know, no matter what, because I was in the United States, and I really didn't have any worries. And if I did have those worries, I'm sure I would have held back, you know, when I was doing the drawings. Maybe I would have been afraid to yeah. draw certain things. So just the fact that I felt like I could do whatever I wanted legally, I mean, or I didn't even think about the law. So um, there was one time my grandfather from Kentucky was visiting, and I was in my room doing drawings. Um, this was in 89, so it would have been drawings for Boiled Angel number 1. And I remember a specific drawing I was doing, like had breast and of a woman, and this eyeball was hanging out of like kind of a skull head. And he was looking over my shoulder, kind of silent. And he said, "Boy, son, you really know how to draw those tits and eyeballs, don't you?" And I remember that my grandpa was cool. He was in the navy and everything. And yeah. He went on to tell me that when he was a kid, they had these things they would just call them fuck books. He didn't know the actual title, but it was like small um, black and white little magazines with pictures of a woman's vagina or breast, and it always had a guy with a mustache and a cigar, like, posing next to the vagina. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I remember those good old fuck books. And I was like, well, that's cool. 
And then when I even got approached by two detectives for Boy Ranger number six, I'd only sent a few issues out, and two detectives showed up to my mother's house where I was staying at the time, and they pulled out number six out of a briefcase. Undercover, I had drawn a man, uh, or a, more of a boy, like, that looked similar to me with long hair, cutting open a woman, a girl, pulling out a fetus. And, um... The Gainesville student murders that had happened in 1991, they were still looking for the killer. And so they used that as as an excuse um, to come after me. Hmm. It turned out that the police had pulled someone over in, I believe, San Francisco and found marijuana in the car and found this Boiled Angel number 6 issue and sent the book along to Florida authorities because the person, the cop in California had seen reports on the news about the murders and figured, well, maybe this is a connection or something. Um, So the detectives told me and my mother that I had to give a blood sample for DNA testing to clear my name as a suspect in the murders. My mother, understandably (laughs) upset at the time, insisted I give a blood sample, which I did. Yeah. And then later in the paper, an article came out saying that there was over 10,000 suspects in the Gainesville student murders. And that people were... They were grasping um, at straws at that point, it sounds like. Yeah, and that a lot of people were um, um, basically saying that they wanted to have a court order to give their blood. So I realized that I they couldn't have just taken my blood forcefully, you know, that yeah. they asked me to do it and I gave it to them. But I guess it doesn't matter anyway at this point, so... Obviously nothing came of that, it sounds like that, at least as far as um, you... Well, as far as the murders, it didn't. Yeah. Nothing happened, but... When the detectives left, they said, um, you know, I said something about freedom of speech, and they said, we don't like your attitude. Yeah. Uh, we're going to show this to a judge and have it ruled as obscenity. And he basically told me not to do any more of these books. And then he went on to say, and don't tell any of your punk friends about us or something like that. And I'm just like, what the hell is this guy talking about, you know? And they left, and I didn't, I just put it out of my mind. Yeah. I tried to, and I did number seven. You just went ahead and worked on the next the next book? Yeah, I printed number seven at an actual print shop. And uh, the printer, owner of the print shop was all friendly about doing the book, you know, getting my business until he started printing it and seeing what it was. Yeah. And then he said, well, I don't want your business anymore, but he managed to print 300 copies. So number seven actually wasn't Xerox. It was on an actual printing press with, like, aluminum sheets and stuff. Well, that, I mean, that, there's an interesting side note to that, too, as far yeah. as what, how it got printed the first time around. Yeah, exactly. That was through your mom's work, right? Well, it was my job that she had got me, where she had worked as a secretary. And I got a job as a um, maintenance worker, which is basically cleaning the bathrooms and cleaning, uh, the uh, emptying the garbage cans and vacuuming the carpets in the offices. Yeah. I remember reading somewhere that she was working at a police station at one point. You were making copies through through that. Oh well, that's when I was probably like twelve years old. Oh, okay. She, uh, I was in Boy Cub Scouts actually, or I was probably in Boy Scouts by then. But it was like thirteen. But I was young, and she was a secretary at the front desk of the Largo Police Station. Yeah. So one day I didn't have a babysitter at home, so I got to go and stay there, like in the office with her as she worked, actually hanging out in the Largo Police Station. And I had a um, 
would have been my earliest zines, even though I didn't know I was doing a zine at that time. It was just my drawings of monsters, and mm-hmm. I wanted to uh, copy them on a copy machine just to have a couple copies for myself, you know, just to have the fun of Xeroxing them. So, I mean, technically I was making a, two copies of a zine back then. Yeah. I just didn't realize it, I guess. There's definitely this sense as sort of Stepford Wives thing mm-hmm. going on. You hear a lot of stories about Florida <laughs> anyway, about oh, all yeah. the, the craziness, you know, around Florida, and, it, you know, it sounds like... Especially Definitely, when yeah. they're dealing with you know these these the serial killer in Gainesville, it sounds like the uh, case where the the police had much more important things to worry about, but still you were you were who they're focusing on. Well, yeah, they just I mean they had plenty of time to come after me because Florida's like a police state, and you have like all kinds of police organizations, you know, and you have the towns around Largo where I lived are basically speed traps, and that's how they make their money. Yeah, and all you see is like. Um, Billboards for lawyers. It's all about lawyers, you know, like they're setting you up to get in trouble. Like, well, since you're going to get arrested here, here's some billboards for lawyers to call, you know. It's just. So everybody's kind of paying into the system. Of, yeah, it's like the whole, based on the whole legal yeah. system to make money and stuff. And next to the pawn shops, next to the churches. There was clearly a humorous element to some of it. But ultimately, you won't think that would Im- impact potential obscenity charge. But it, I guess they just didn't get the jokes, and that's kind of the issue. Yeah, I mean, we're actually doing a documentary about my case. Yeah. Um, some friends of mine working on it, and we went down to Florida last November, interviewed my lawyer, and they wanted to interview. They already interviewed the prosecutor of Texas like a year ago, but they interviewed this guy. He was one of the ones back then that was on the news saying, well, in this case, Boiled Angel case, we really have to push for the full extent, the, of, the law, uh, extent yeah. of the law, which is yeah. three years in jail, you know for three counts. Um, that's what's necessary for this case. And they went to interview him, and they said it's a perfect interview because he's screaming at the camera, yes, it's obscene, it was then and it is now. Yeah. You think AIDS-infected blood of Christ is funny? That's funny, AIDS-infected bloods of Christ? And uh, they said it was a perfect reaction that they would expect. In Florida, they still feel like it's, you know, the same, even though the jury didn't understand the law, what the obscenity law is, which yeah. is, you know, the five-prong test or whatever it's called. Um, yeah. If it has, if it lacks serious artistic, literary, scientific, political value, then it can be obscene. But if it has artistic value, if it has any one of those values, then it cannot be legal, labeled obscene because it's protected as freedom of speech. So. In court, they were there to prove that my artwork was not art. The poetry in the zine was not actual con- considered literature, and um, so on. And that's what I felt very offended myself by, that they could say that this artwork that I drew was not art. And they had who was the, the prosecution's um, psychiatrist that they hired for a fee of $10,000, and he was a psychiatrist that testified against Ted Bundy and other serial killers. And he basically said that, and this is just by viewing the Boiled Angel books prior to the the trial, this is the kind of art that turns people that look at it into serial killers, that can push people over the edge, people that have a deviant personality. Um, This is the kind of entertainment that serial killers seek out. And this is what he was telling the jury, who was also, who was already um, on edge about serial killers anyway, because in the news at the time, it was all about serial killers and the talk shows and selling that fear, you know, even though you're more likely to be killed many other ways than killed by a serial killer, you know, I mean, your actual likeliness, number-wise. In a sense, the main thrust wasn't even obscenity. It was this idea that you were going to 
turn people who read it into murderers. Well, it's definitely the angle the prosecution took. It's already an incredibly surreal situation for you, I've got to imagine. But to layer on top of that this conversation about them talking about whether or not it's art has to be a complete other element to it. I mean, what... um, yeah. I mean, obviously, this was many, many years ago, but take me through that a little bit as far as what arguments both sides were making about whether or not this was legitimate art. During um, jury selection, yeah. I got to go to see that with my lawyers, prosecutor. You start out with 30 people from the community, and the lawyer, you know, the prosecutor gets to strike, like, say, three people that he thinks are not going to be good for him, and my lawyer the same, you know. And supposedly you end up with a, a partial sure. jury. Impartial. Idea. Yeah. Impartial. So the first round of question, one of the first questions I think the prosecutor asked was, or maybe it was my side, my lawyer, is it okay for art to be shocking? You know, this kid who looked like he was maybe 19 years old, oh, I think it's all right for art to be shocking sometimes, you know, and had his reasons. And this woman who looked like she was in her 30s, you know, said also, now this is out of 30 people. These are the two that said it's all right for art to be shocking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, of course, the prosecution just took them away yeah. the right way. I'm thinking in my mind, like, just don't say anything, you know. Say that you think art. I mean, go the opposite of what you really feel. Yeah. Um, so those are the two youngest people in the jury gone. Uh, one of my lawyer's Oh, it, the woman in her 30s was the like, second well, youngest. Well, she was struck, too. Yeah, yeah, but she was potentially the second youngest. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, much older people. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about all gray hair mostly. Yeah, yeah. And, like, middle-aged and old people at this point left. So, next question my lawyer had asked was, have you ever had any contact with pornography? And this old woman, she's about 80 years old, holds her hand up. Oh, I have. I found a copy of Playboy magazine in my grandson's underwear drawer. It was back in 1952, she was talking about. Um, I thought then, you know, oh, I'm in trouble. Uh, One of the, the prosecution's expert witnesses, the art expert, he had blown up enlargements of Baby Fuck Dog Food, which is one of the more extreme comics in The Boiled Angel, number seven. And, you know, he went on to, like, the prosecutor was asking him, well, this is not art. This cannot be considered as art, right? And he'd shake his head, no, it's not art, absolutely not. And he would kind of lose track of what he was saying, and he'd say, look, I love the way he drew this part with the lines, and look at these lines, the power that it shows. And, um... He was, he was mind, describing the artistic was, merit of yeah, it? Yeah, he was like describing that. And then he went on to say that he actually got censored from the Christian newsletter he worked for. He would do a comic strip for them, and he did one that went too far. It was an image of a man's body laying back down or face up on a table, and a guy wearing a bib with a fork and knife is actually cutting the guy into him, eating him like a cannibal. And the caption is, it's all, a ma- it's all a matter of taste. And he was disappointed because this was not accepted, and he was censored from the newsletter. And then the lawyer interrupted him. You know, I mean, my uh, prosecutor interrupted him and yeah. said, but it's not art. And he goes, no, no, absolutely not. It's not art. And so I felt like, the, you know, he was helping us out. But, of course, at the end, I realized that that... Didn't help. I mean, it was unhelpable situation, pretty much. We got to have expert witnesses ourselves, so the lawyer had gotten uh, artist Peter Cooper, who works, yeah. who started World War Three Illustrated magazine, that I had been in that is- uh, issues before World War III. Um, they brought him to Florida. 
to be my art expert for us, you know, to kind of inform the jury that zines are artwork, you know, and whatever, this whole other art world they don't know about. There's a funny uh, comic, uh, I believe it's one or two page. I think it's one page actually, comic that Peter Cooper had, had made about the wrapping up the trial, you know, and being on the... The, the, uh, the being in the stand. court case, yeah. witness stand. Um, the story he gives is uh, he was trying to decide, you know, he got in the Boiled Angels in the mail for the first time and was trying to decide if he could defend it because he said it was very extreme and yeah. not really his cup of tea. Yeah. And then he got a phone call from the prosecutor and they were saying to Peter, like, are you coming to Florida? You know, it's, it's not art, right? It's not art. He kept saying to him, well, it's not art, right? And Peter said, well, of course it's art. And, but it's obscene, right? It's, it's not art and it's obscene. And then they were so pushy that Peter, like, hung up the phone. He said, I'm doing it. I'm going to Florida. It's really great, obviously, having somebody of Peter's status on your side. Was there any point in, in the process? I mean, you know, there, there, you know, very few artists have that level of dissection of their work in front of them. Was there a point when you began to doubt whether or not it was art? No, no, I knew it was art. Just I just knew they didn't understand. Yeah. Oh, I mean, they were using using the um, obscenity law as an excuse, you know, like trying to... Once, you know, I didn't realize even what the uh, prosecution's angle was necessarily... I mean, I just assumed they were going to say, well, look, it's sexual things, you know, that that's not that's obscene art. But when I realized they're saying it's not art, it just made me more angry because, of course, it's art. Yeah. Even a stick figure, um, I mean, cave paintings and all that stuff is art, even though it's, if it's simply um, constructed or whatever, you know, it's still art. Um and that was the more troubling thing for me is that I knew that the jury didn't really understand the law. They understand what they were doing there. They looked at, they actually got a time where they passed around the actual seven and eight issues in their hands to look through them and pass them amongst each other and examine them when they were on de- deliberations, you know, back deliberating. And they just didn't like what they were looking at, you know. It's obscene, you know, to us, so it's guilty, but they didn't really understand what they were supposed to be doing there, I feel like. How long was the actual trial? Um, it lasted from, I believe, Monday to Thursday, and then on oh. Thursday I was found guilty. I was on the stand myself for a couple hours. Prosecution was asking me um, to explain why I had the story from Gerard Schaefer. Um, he was reading certain lines out of that, which, taken out of context, do sound bad, you know. Um, the literary expert that the prosecution hired was saying that all the writing in Boiled Angel could not be considered literature because it's no um, life-affirming values. example he used was in the book The Grapes of Wrath, there's a scene where they're on the wagon train, they're starving to death and babies are dying and this woman who was nursing a baby, the baby actually dies and yeah. she ends up breastfeeding a full-grown man to try and nourish him and how this has life-affirming values. Um, if I drew it, you know, it wouldn't. So in a sense, not having a moral to the story is what makes it not literature in this. Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like I have morals to the stories, yeah. but they weren't um, seeing them. I mean, this is just another tactic, you know, the prosecution wanting to cover themselves, all this, like, prongs of the obscenity law. So three days? Um, well, it was like four days, okay. yeah. But still, very, very and short trial. the fourth day, it took the jury 45 minutes to come into a guilty verdict on all three counts. 
and I was taken from the courthouse to the jail across the street. The lawyer said that the judge didn't have to put me in jail over the weekend. He just they wanted to make an example out of me for uh, fighting against them, you know, making them go to trial. So I was taken to the court to the jail in a paddy wagon, and there was, um, I don't know what it was, I was taken to the back room of the, in the courthouse and handcuffed, and they brought me out through a back exit. But one of the news camera um, stations, Channel 8, knew about that back exit, so they were right there filming me being put into a paddy wagon and handcuffs to go to the jail. And so I was put in the jail in um, maximum detention the first two days, hmm. which is just like a metal bed, no blankets or sheets, um, bright um, fluorescent lights stay on 24 hours. And, um, and I assume you're there with uh, real bad people. Yeah. They give you a bologna sandwich and some Kool-Aid with no sugar in it. Yeah. Like a styrofoam cup. And then they sort you out by, you know, eventually get your mug shots and fingerprints taken and write down if you have tattoos and sort you out uh, according to what you're in there for. And so I got a minimum detention area for the pat for the last two days I was there, which was like with DUI offenders and stuff. My mother and my girlfriend at the time came to visit me. They got to visit for like 20 minutes or so. And um, that night, there was a news report. You know, we all would gather around the TV, all of us inmates, and watch TV, and Married with Children was on. And this was like the original air date episode, you know, and the episode was about um, Al getting a vasectomy. So there's all these penis snip jokes like <laughs> Peggy cutting the ends off a carrot you yeah know? and um, then the news came on and I was on the news showing me my trial and everybody recognized me at that point They're like oh that's you you know said that I was going back I was getting out of jail to go back to sentencing and they all cheered at the end of the report so it was very interesting yeah um, you know, you hadn't even actually officially been sentenced at this point. They just threw you in jail for three days. Well, it was for uh, the weekend, so I was yeah. there for Thursday night, Friday. This wasn't even part of the sentence. This was—they were detaining yeah. you as if you were a dangerous it was criminal. Like four days. Like yeah, I was going to flee. Yeah, for sentencing. So. Yeah. Four days, and then it was a Tuesday, I believe, not a Monday, but like Tuesday morning. I went back to the courthouse, like 9 a.m. from the jail for sentencing. And I was worried because I was facing that three years, you know. Um, so it was a possibility I could yeah. get jail time. So it's sentencing the prosecutors there, and both of my parents showed up because they were f- afraid, you know. My father was saying to me, well, why didn't he get more involved with the case from the beginning? You know, my parents stayed away from it because they were basically afraid for me and probably it would stress them out. Yeah. I don't even think they had watched the news reports mm-hmm. when I was on it. But by both, you know, parents, even though they had been divorced and not had been in the same room with each other for many years they showed up at the courthouse to tell the judge that I was a good kid basically and I had a little beer shop my father owned a beer and cigarette store so I'd work there so my father said well I need my son to work in my store they're trying to keep me out of jail as far as the actual sentencing you weren't in prison for three years which is the upside to that but there were some really bizarre caveats I was in the courthouse so I look up and I see and I'm imagining the stories he's going to tell the judge about me, you know. Um, they were trying to paint you as an actual dangerous person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was stressing to the judge that I need to get jail time because otherwise it's not a punishment. That now I've become rich and famous due to the state of Florida, the publicity, 
that now my prints of my art are selling in New York City for $1,000 each, uh-huh. which is all not true. Yeah. But yeah, which was really pressing for that me to be in jail for three years or at least a year or whatever. And the judge said, well, I have no prior record, so he's not going to give me jail time. But he gave me a very, what I thought was crazy probation, um, terms of probation, which was... Three years probation, a $3,000 fine, because each misdemeanor carries a $1,000 fine. Get a psychiatric evaluation, any treatment needed at my own expense. Um, I ended up going to a psychiatrist to try and fulfill that part of the probation. And she said she charges $100 an hour. I would come down, and it would be about two hours taking written tests with me, talking to me. So I figured, all right, that's going to be 200 bucks. So I get there, and she gives me the inkblot test, you know. Mm, she Rorschach, gives you a yeah. written test where... You realize they're asking you the same question again and again to see if you answer the same, you know, true, false questions, etc. Talk to me for a while, about two hours. So when it's time to pay, she says, well, you have to pay right when, you know, service is rendered. And I had the 200 in my pocket. She says, well, that'll be $1,200. And I said, what? She says, well, $200 for what we did just here. And I spent 10 hours reviewing the Boiled Angels to uh, determine, you know, your, your health on that. So $1,000 for her to read your comic. And I really doubted that she spent maybe an hour at the most. Yeah. I mean, if it's true that you're going to become a serial killer, you know, 10 hours, she would sure. have been nuts in herself. But anyway, <laughs> she said, uh, well, that'll be cash or, or, you know, card or whatever. Yeah. And I said, well, that'll be IOU. <laughs> she said, well, you know, it's going to violate your probation. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders because I'm not going to give $1,200, you know. Um so already I was getting in trouble with this uh, probation. I Another um, condition was that I stay at least 10 feet away from anyone under 18 years of age. You're being treated like um, a sex offender. Yeah. I maintain full-time employment at my father's store, and if any children came into the shop, I had to be behind the counter when they were in there. I had to do three years of the community service work, which was eight hours a week for three years, which came out to like over a thousand hours. I ended up doing that at the Vietnam Veterans Thrift Store um, in Florida, which turned out was an old Sarge, you know, and the probation officer was saying, well, you know, this guy's an old old drill sergeant. I don't know if you're going to be good with him, you yeah. know, and I said, I'll take him. So anyway, he turned it out to be like the nicest guy, yeah. you know. Worked at the thrift store eight hours a week, you know, like organizing and stuff. Uh, another probation requirement was that I take a journalism ethics class and, and get a passing grade. And during part of my defense, I was testifying that I wanted, that I considered my writing about serial killers to be like journalism. So that's where he got that. You know, he's like, well, you want to be a serious journalist? You're going to take a journalism ethics class. And one of the most troubling aspects of the probation was that I was ordered not to draw anything for three years, even for my own personal use, and the police were allowed to make checks in my apartment to search for obscene artwork. And did they? Uh, they never did check. Did, did you stop drawing for three years? No, I never actually stopped drawing. One of the funny things is that the day I, got a, the day I left sentencing, my mother took me and my girlfriend at that time to a seafood restaurant, and they had these kind of white plain paper tablecloths mm-hmm. to encourage kids to draw on the table and I started drawing fish with boners and like taking long poops you know like in a 
a fish tank, you see a long trail. I mean, I'm considered that would have been legally obscene right there. <laughs> I could have went back to jail that night, but I was just didn't care, I guess. Yeah. But you were drawing for yourself. Obviously, you weren't publishing anything at that point. Um, you know, I actually had stopped drawing for a bit and started painting instead because oh, okay. I always wanted to get into color. Yeah. And I saw this as a good opportunity, even though it was no creating art at all. But I would keep the painting and the paint supplies hidden in the trunk of my car, and then I would sneak them up at like 2 a.m. and work on it and then sneak it back yeah. down. So I definitely had paranoia and fear, I mean, about having to go to jail. Sure. And, um, and, of course, at that point, I also had more hatred towards Florida than ever. I mean, I hated Florida ever since I moved there when I was young, even though I was, had bare minimum legal problems, you know, harassment probably, but never anything like this, you know. You were found guilty, and, and you had to deal with all the repercussions of that. You did contact the CBLDF at one point. What what role did they actually end up playing? Well, they defended me. They So the lawyers were through the CBLDF? Yes, they got me a first amendment lawyer in my community, Yeah, actually in Tampa, which is nearby. They got me the lawyer, and he showed up, and I pled not guilty again, and went to his office to watch the news reports that morning, because um, during that trial where the lawyer showed up, me and my cousin and my friends, who were like my supporters at the time, we baked a cake. We called it a First Amendment cake. <laughs> and with frost, white frosting and red letters, we put First Amendment on it. The idea was that we were cutting the First Amendment up in pieces and serving it like cake, you know, outside the courthouse. My lawyer came out, you know, and my, um, I mean, we have this actually all on film, you know, we filmed the event and the news cameras were there and Two uh, women protester groups showed up against me, protesting Boiled Angel. And so that was on the news, you know, that night. So we went back to the lawyer's office to watch the news report and to discuss everything. And the main story when we turned the news on was the Waco uh, Branch Davidian compound uh, up in flames. Yeah. You know? And just gave us this kind of sickening feeling, like, you know, yeah. what kind of world are we in? And, I mean, at the time, I was having problems just eating because I just felt, like, nervous stomach and everything. You were facing and, three um, years in prison. Yeah, yeah, in a place where I just hated anyway. And, yeah. you know, the anger was just, like, getting worse, you know. And, um, and then you, you kind of want to direct anger maybe into artwork, but now you're not allowed to draw. So yeah, that was a whole crazy thing. But really, I feel like I never stopped totally drawing. Yeah. You, know? you have this three-year period where, where legally you're, you're not supposed to be drawing, but you're doing some painting. At the end of the three years, what, what, take, take me through that a little bit. I mean, are, are, does somebody alert you to the fact that the three years are up? Do you just know that it's up and then start producing again? Did you have to ramp back up into it? I started going to the you know probation yeah. each month. You go and you pay like a $50 probation fee to go. Pay $100 to the, the clerk's office each month towards the fine. I was going to do my community service hours each week. And then the lawyer filed for an appeal, so we got the probation put on hold until the outcome of the appeal. So my probation was put on hold, and the appeal was on, and this was in 1996. I got the strong feeling that I wanted to leave Florida. You know, I had been wanting to yeah. leave forever, yeah. but um, I decided, well, I'm going to leave before my birthday. My birthday was on June 5th, so it's 1996, and I figured well, I'll move before I hear either way. So I left. I didn't even tell my lawyer. I moved out, and I actually got to New York, like, I think, on my birthday itself, 
Lower East Side. And then my father called that day and he said, the police are looking for you. Your case has been, your conviction has been upheld by the Second District Court. And they denied any further appeal. And I contacted my lawyer and he said that since I'm already there in New York, they can't forcefully bring me back because it's misdemeanors. Um, if it was felonies, it'd be different. And he always said he doesn't really know why they charged me three misdemeanors, that they could have charged me with three felonies with obscenity, but they, for whatever reason, they didn't. That's one that surprised him, but luckily so. So since I was already living in New York, my lawyer set it up so I could do probation through the mail mm -hmm. to Florida, which meant calling the probation officer on the phone, sending the $50 payment, sending the fine each month. Um, the probation officer said I had to see a psychiatrist in New York City on a regular basis, which I did. I took to the journalism ethics class at NYU. turned out that the teacher who worked at the New York Times had heard about my case and knew about it. I started to get behind in my fine is the one bad thing. I was a couple hundred behind, and my probation officer woman decided to quit the probation office, and she violated my probation as she left, and that was in 98. And I decided just not to worry about it for all those years, that I just was going to stay out of Florida. I have been back, but I know I have a warrant for my arrest there. So if I'm ever caught for anything in Florida, stopped by the police, then I'm not sure what will happen. I mean, I could yeah. end up back in jail. In a sense, this whole thing is kind of still very much alive and ongoing. Yeah, I mean, it's still has to come to uh, an end eventually. Your stuff has you know, now been published in, the, in those nice volumes. Do you still have a, that fear in the back of your mind about you know, getting, getting in trouble again? Um, other than being in Florida, I don't really have any fear yeah. about trouble. Um, yeah, because um, I, mean, I think most places are not that crazy that they, um, even if they don't like it, that they wouldn't actually charge it. Last time I was there, my cousin did tell me there was some kind of obscenity trial, like a certain name for this Japanese-style drawings, that somebody was doing these kind of drawings in that style, which is like um, maybe like naked children's bodies with animal heads on them or something weird like that, yeah. like weird little fairy characters. I mean, so I, I think that these things are alive and well in that community. Yeah. Maybe not as bad with the internet these days as it was then, but I still wouldn't put it past them, you know. In a sense, this kind of made your career a little better. It certainly, certainly raised the level of notoriety. Yeah, I mean, certainly. Um, I was getting known in some places, like Fanographics books and yeah. things published before I was actually charged. But it was... Um, Certainly, I wouldn't have ended up with, like, an article about me in Playboy magazine yeah. and, like, Wired magazine and a lot of other places if it wasn't for the publicity. I feel, in a way, it makes sense because living in Florida in that crazy community is what shaped the art in the direction that it went in and its extremeness. And so it's kind of like they're prosecuting me after creating me, in a way. And, yeah. um and it's just interesting, you know. But, yeah... As long as I'm not in Florida now, I don't really have such bad feelings about it now that it's in the past. You can't go home again. Well, not yet. I mean, one of these days. There you have it. That was Mike Diana. Uh, thanks so much to the CBLDF for setting that up. You can check out some of Mike's work at Mike Diana Comics. 
with an X if you want to see what got him into so much hot water. Uh, or actually, there's a really beautiful bound collection of his Boiled Angel stuff that came out a couple of years ago. It's called Mike Diana, America with a Ford by Neil Gaiman. Uh, thanks so much to Mike for taking the time to do that and for telling his story. Uh, thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of the show. Uh, you can send us some feedback. It's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. Like us on Facebook. And I think that's about all I got for this week. So uh, stick around because we'll be back in uh, a few days, actually, with another episode of RIYL. 